Uh, turning your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20 and verse 7. This is our fourth message on the third commandment, and it will not be the last, Lord willing. Verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So what we um, have been looking at so far has been the first table of the law, which has to do with how we relate to God, how we interact with God, and above all, how we are to worship God. And we have also noted that the negative prohibitions, they all, except the fourth commandment, are stated negatively. Uh, Behind that uh, negative prohibition is a positive principle that we're to understand each time. And so, for example, no other gods, that means that God alone is to be worshipped. No graven images means uh, behind that is the positive principle that he's to be worshipped in the way that he is authorized. Uh, Behind the commandment that you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain is the positive principle that whenever we invoke the name of God, we are to do so uh, with reverence and and with respect. And and this has uh, vast implications for how we go about worshiping. So if the second commandment has to do with the way that we worship, the form, you know, no uh, no, no graven images, the third commandment has to do with uh, the motive of the heart that we bring to worship. the, third, the second and the third commander roughly correspond to Jesus' instruction to the uh, Samaritan woman at the well. Uh, she says to, uh, to, to, to Jesus, are we to worship in this mountain or that mountain? Jesus says to her, you worship that which you do not know. We worship what we know. That, that, that is uh, to worship God in truth. In other words, to have the right the right way of worshiping. You don't know how to worship God, he tells her. We do. Salvation is other truth. We have saving truth. And so we know God and we know how to worship him. And, and, and then um, also this question of this mountain or that mountain, her, her concern there is, is uh, with being in the right place at the right time. And Jesus says, it's not a matter of the position of the body in a given location. No, God is to be worshipped in spirit. Uh, God is to be worshipped with the right motive, with the right internal attitude. God is to be worshipped with reverence. It's, a, it's not a matter of, of physical uh, location. And so John 4 roughly corresponds to the meaning of the second and, and, and uh, the third commandments. Second uh, commandment having to do with the way that we go about worshiping. Third commandment having to do with how we go about worshiping God. We are to worship God from the heart. And, and remember, the, the woman at the well, when, when she's asking this question, it did matter up to that time where you worshiped God. This mountain or that mountain, prior to Jesus' declaration, it mattered that you worshiped in Jerusalem in the right building, with the right ritual, with the right priesthood, uh, with the right ceremonies. And Jesus was saying, no longer is that the case. And so in the New Testament, there is a particularly fresh emphasis on the internal dimension of worship. 
So let's look under four different headings. What is required of our worship according to the third commandment? So what the third commandment is asking of us is that we worship God spiritually. So the idea of worshiping God in spirit is not something that is unique to the Old Testament. Psalm 103, let all that is within me bless his holy name. That's concerned about the heart. That's concerned about the attitude. And then if you go through the multiple prophetic critiques of Old Testament worship that you have from one end of the prophets to the other, uh, what we will find is that uh, they, their, their primary criticism summed up by Jesus in his interaction with the Pharisee when he cites Isaiah who said, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Uh, you know, they had the right words. They had the right formula. Uh, they were saying things correctly, honoring me with their lips. But what was wrong with their worship? Well, their hearts were far from it. It's not enough to have the right form. It's not, a, it's not a knife or right, uh, enough to have the right ritual or the right ceremony. Uh, no, it has, to be, um, it has to be, because God is spirit, it has to be with the right attitude as well. So number one, uh, the characteristic of spiritual worship, worship that pleases God, the God who is spirit, Philippians 3.3, 3, who requires that we worship by the spirit of God, is that we worship him with spiritual motives. Spiritual motives. Uh, Psalm 139 uh, gives us uh, an exposition, provides an exposition of the omniscience and uh, omnipresence of God. He knows all things. He is always there. He knows our hearts. He knows our thoughts from afar, David says in, in that psalm. Because that is true of God, we can never worship him in a God-pleasing way if we are only worshiping formally or mechanically or with um, external correctness. Uh, First Chronicles 29.8, the, uh, the God of the Bible searches the heart. Hebrews 4.12, all things are open and laid bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So this fresh emphasis in the New Testament, we worship Romans 7, 6 in the new way of the spirit, which means both correct form and internal motivation. Uh, so the Lord's day comes around. Why should I go to church? Well, you should go to church because you're commanded to go to church. You're not to forsake the assembling together. We read in the book of Hebrews, so it's a matter of obedience. I think we go to church in order to please God. That's another valid motive for, uh, for attending church uh, Sunday by Sunday. It is our ambition, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, to be pleasing to him. And so we want to please him. But also, it is in, in order to enjoy spiritual fellowship with God. Christ. Again, it's not just to participate in a ritual, not to just participate in a ceremony. Jesus promises in Matthew 18, 20, that where two or three are gathered in his name, he will be there in their midst. And so there is this, this critical spiritual dimension of fellowship between the believer and with God in Christ, which leads uh, to the next point characteristic of spiritual worship is spiritual delight. We are drawing near to God in the Christian assembly as we administer the elements, the ordinances of God. 
And so we invoke his name when we properly invoke it, not mechanically, not as a matter of mere formality, but with delight. Because we are in proper spiritual worship, we are enjoying fellowship with Christ. We are partaking of what Jesus calls the living water that quenches the thirst of the soul, John 4.10. Jesus invites us, if any man thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And from his innermost soul will flow rivers of living water. Psalm 36, 8 speaks of us drinking from the river of his delights and partaking of the fullness of his house. Psalm 1611, in his presence is the fullness of joy at his right hand, our pleasures forevermore. Psalm 73, 28, the nearness of God is our good. Psalm 84, 1 uh, through 2 and verse 10 speaks of the tabernacles of God being lovely and how the psalmist would rather have a day in the house of God, and that that is better than a thousand besides, a thousand anywhere else uh, doing anything else. Far better it is, he says, uh, to be in the, taber- in the tabernacles of God, in the presence of God, with the people of God. Psalm 63, the psalmist seeks and thirsts and craves uh, for the presence of God. Psalm 42, 1 through 4, he's as the deer the pants for the water brook. You can see when we are worshiping God properly, honoring his name, calling upon him, invoking him, it's not a matter of mechanical correctness. We are spiritually motivated to do so. God knows our hearts. And when we do so, it should be characterized by eagerness and delight in God and the things of God. We also, when we properly worship God, we employ spiritual means. How do we access the spiritual benefits that come to us in Christ? Well, take a trip to Rome and take in all of the beautiful art and architecture. Rome employed, the Roman church employed That is the development of the beautiful buildings and the beautiful art as an apologetic strategy. So that you were were meant to go and to view St. Peter's and the Sistine Chapel and uh, the other uh, monuments uh, to the faith. Uh, You were meant to be wowed by that. You were meant to be impressed by that. You were meant to conclude from the beauty of the buildings and the beauty of the art that this must be the true church. And then when you add to that um, the ritual and the the ceremony, uh, the burning of uh, the the incense, the processional, uh, the postures, the gestures, the beauty, the the visible beauty of of the the vestments that are being worn by uh, the priests, all of that together, that's uh, meant to be the means by which the benefits of Christ are received as you take in uh, through the church uh, the beauty of, of the ceremony and the buildings and the ritual and uh, the art. Our counter argument is that art and architecture are not a spiritual means of blessing for the people of God. I, I think that the I, I think that the 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 uh, 
sort of the high church view is, is, is interesting, the way that it corresponds with the low church view. So that you have in um, contemporary evangelical churches at, at their most extreme, you have a similar kind of appeal to the eye gate rather than the ear gate. So that when you attend one of, one of these services, uh, you might be treated to, you know, um, uh, pyrotechnics uh, and, and a smoke machine. And a, and a light show, and, and loud, pounding music. Uh, all of this pri primarily designed to appeal to the visual senses and to move you in a certain direction or other. What the Apostle Paul says to the Athenians, Acts 17, 29, that the, the, the blessings of God are not mediated and God is not known by, quote, the art and imagination of man. Rather, how, how do we uh, know God and, in, and invoke his name properly? Only through authorized means. When we attach his name to these unauthorized means, art and architecture, and the other gimmicks that, that we're able to create through the art and imagination of man, we, we, are, we are attaching the name of God to means that he has not authorized and in, thereby taking his name in vain. So rather what we are to do is to use spiritual means, ordinary means, the authorized ordinances of God, and it's by these that we are converted, sanctified, and blessed. So we're back to the question that I regularly raise. How do we get the benefits of what Jesus did long ago and far away? Are they mediated to us through art? Did God commission artists to paint pictures? And by these pictures, grace would be mediated to us. They would be a, you know, a, a, a genuine spiritual blessing to us. And in the sense of mediating grace, um, did he commission, you know, architects to build buildings? And, or did he, did he um, authorize uh, sculptors to sculpt uh, uh, statues? And these are the means of mediation, all of which were prevalent forms of art in the ancient world, right? The Greeks invented the, most of this stuff, or if not, they inherited it from the Egyptians and further developed it, right? The, the statuary, the, you know, the... the, the the, the paintings, the architecture, drama, uh, all of that. Uh, trace, trace it all back to the Greeks. It's all available in the first century. It's there for the Apostle Paul and the other apostles to utilize. It's, it's there for Jesus to commission such uh, to create art and architecture. If it's through, if it's through these visual means that, that uh, the benefits of Christ are meant to be mediated to us, uh, but that's not what he did. And it's a very deliberate thing that he did. What he authorized was preachers. He commissioned apostles to preach. Go, therefore, and preach the gospel. Make disciples of the nations, teaching them. So it, it's, it's, by, it's by the ministry of the word. But it's the ministry of the word, that is, that we get the benefits of what Jesus did long ago and far away. It's through the... the the ministry of the word, the spiritual means, the word sacraments and prayer, the content of which is filled with scripture, uh, that those benefits of Christ come to us as the Holy Spirit works through the word to bring uh, those benefits to us. But that brings us full cycle uh, to motivation once again, because 
The word sacraments and prayer, the ordinances of God, are not to be utilized mechanically or rotely. So Jesus, Matthew 6, 7, speaks of empty phrases. You're not to pray to God, addressing him with empty phrases, or think that we have access to him because of our many words. That's to pray like a pagan. That's to misunderstand the way that it works. We pray with understanding, utilizing these spiritual means. And so when we participate in the ministry of the word, it is with joy. It is uh, not uh, reluctantly. It's, uh, it's not that we endure the ministry of the word. Our sp when the spiritual means are being utilized, our motivation is a matter of delight. Uh, so for example, Psalm 119, five times speaks of our love for the word of God four times of our joy in the Word of God, eight times our delight in the Word of God. As we participate, again, it's not reluctantly, it's not something that we endure, it's not something that we put up with, but as spiritual means are utilized, we come at that with the right attitude. It's vital, it's crucial that we do so out of love for that Word. Psalm 122, verse 1, I was glad when they said to me, let us go up to the house of God. I wasn't being dragged there. I, I didn't go there thinking just so long as I get my body in, in, in that place and, and then in, endure the boring uh, service, watching my watch the whole time, can't wait until uh, it's over, uh, wondering when is the preacher ever going to stop so I can go and do something uh, that's more entertaining than this. In other words, we, we don't come uh, to the worship, we don't come uh, and sit under the ministry of the word dutifully and reluctantly as though it was some kind of a burdensome duty that we had to endure. No, it's a matter of joy and delight and love. We worship God delighting in the spiritual means that he's given to us. Listen to the language of the psalm, Psalm 95, O come, let us sing to the Lord, let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make, a, again, a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. I know we make a joke about this. People who can't sing well say they make a joyful noise. That's really not the point of this. The point is that when we sing our praises to God, it's with joy. We make a joyful noise. We're singing joyfully. Uh, we come into his presence with thanksgiving. Our, praises, our songs are songs of praise that are joyfully being sung. Uh, Psalm 81 once, sing aloud. You're not, you're not sitting in the pew mumbling the hymn. Um, you know, your mind drifting off and gazing in the distance and then suddenly, oh, realize, what are we? Oh, yeah, we're singing a hymn. Let me see, where are we? Which stanza uh, are we? No, we sing aloud. Uh, to the Lord. Sing, to the, to, sing aloud to God our strength. Shout for joy to the God of, of Jacob. Talking about full-throated praise, vigorous praise, loud praise that's being offered by uh, the people of God. Again, this is not a matter of formality. This is not being done externally only. This is not a mechanical thing that we go through, mouthing words. Psalm 100, verses 1 and 2, and then verse 4. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. 
Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. Do you see the note? Can you hear it? Do you, do you, do you, do you understand the whole tone of, of a proper spiritual worship, one that is invoking the name of God properly and in a way that is pleasing to him and one which he receives? It's uh, characterized by, again, joyful noise. noise. We're served is with gladness. We, we, we enter his presence with singing, his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise. We're giving thanks. We're blessing his name. Uh, that's not a ritual. That's not just a ceremony. We're not being, we're not, we're not being browbeaten into coming into the church. This is something that's being eagerly anticipated. You know, I, 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 you see what we, what we eagerly, eagerly anticipate in this civilization. You see it every Saturday. Uh, you see it every Sunday, too, during football season. People eagerly anticipate, don't they? Uh, they talk about it all day, but, you know, the whole week before. You, you can put on these uh, sports programs, and they're going to talk about all the games. Eagerly anticipated. Um, then, then, then there's the day of the game. People go to extraordinary, extravagant lengths in order to be present at games. Spend uh, large sums of money. Um, spend, uh, you know, they tailgate. They spend hours and hours. And the, the game, these college games, they're going on now for three and a half, four hours. It's just unbelievable how long it is. Gladly doing. Then after the game, they drive home. They're talking about it play by play, debriefing the game, completely enthusiastically occupied um, with uh, sports. Before the game, the week before, just before, the game itself, after the game. Uh, there, there's enthusiasm. Uh, there, there's, there's commitment. Uh, there's, um, uh, there's excitement uh, by our contemporaries. And, and for many of us, that's, uh, that, that's the level of excitement that we see in terms of these psalms. Now, I'm granted in worship. We're not going to carry on like a, like a crowd at a football game. We're going to jump up and down. I don't, that's not proper to the worship of God, but what about the internal heart attitude about it? Eager anticipation, looking forward to it, coming and, and singing with, with, uh, with uh, full voices, aloud, joyfully, gladly, cheerfully, uh, eager to be here, happy to be here, with the people of God, in the house of God, with the Spirit of God, uh, offering up our praises to God. The prayer, uh, so from, from the Word of God and the worship of God, what about, what about the element of prayer? Well, according to James 4.8, what we're doing in prayer is we're drawing near to God. That's a way of speaking of fellowship. Four times in the book of Hebrews, it speaks of prayer as drawing near to God. Is that not something that we ought to be motivated to do? that we ought to delight in doing, that we ought to be eager about? If we are taking the Lord's name in vain, we are taking the Lord's name in vain, if all of this is just a matter of duty, if we're, if we're sort of reluctantly going on, if we see this as a burden or a duty or something to endure. No, we're drawing near to God. To God, the creator, the sustainer and governor of all things. God, our Redeemer, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are drawing near to Him. We are entering in His presence. We are enjoying His fellowship. 
We are feeding on the bread of life. We are partaking of living water. They are, the, the, they are quenching the hunger and thirst of our souls. We're in his presence and the fullness of joy. Now how about the Lord's Supper? Another of the elements. Well, according to 1 Corinthians 10, 16, we enjoy koinonia through the bread and through the cup. Fellowship, that's the fellowship word. There was a while there when Sunday school classes were called the koinonia class. It became one of the favorite Greek transliterations that, were, that you'd find in churches all over the country. And, but what the Apostle Paul is saying is that through the table, we enter into fellowship. Through the bread and through the cup, we enter into fellowship with Christ. So if we, if we have a proper spiritual understanding and we are invoking the name of God through, as, we, as we hear the word being read and, and preached, as we enter into worship, as we pray, as the Lord's Supper is administered, if we truly understand what is happening there, there's going to be this, this uh, quality of, of eagerness and of delight and enthusiasm uh, about it. How about the Lord's Day? Setting aside a whole day. Listen to what the confession says. Uh, we are to set aside our worldly recreations and employments and spend the whole time in the public and private exercises of God's worship. The whole time of a whole day. The public and private exercises of God's worship, setting aside worldly recreations and employments. Is that drudgery? Is that a thing that one looks forward to um, as to be endured? Or in the words of Isaiah 58, is the Sabbath a delight? To be able to put aside all those worldly concerns and give full attention to the things of God which delight and thrill the soul, that, that uh, nourish and refresh the soul, uh, fellowship, supernatural fellowship with Christ, with the triune God of all creation. Yeah, I mean, you know, our, our society pines away for professional athletics and college athletics. They do. Shouldn't the people of God be pining away for the public assembly where they're going to hear the treasured word of God, where they're going to draw near to God in, through the prayer and the sacraments, where, where they're going to observe a Sabbath that is a delight to their souls because they're, they, they, they're able to celebrate uh, redemption and set aside all that would distract them uh, from that. God's name must be invoked with integrity. And that means when we worship God, our hearts, our affections, and our appetites must be fully engaged if we are to invoke his name with integrity. So again, some of the language of the Psalms. Uh, Psalm 34, 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. That's a language of experience, isn't it? You, 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 you gather as the people of God. It's a, it's, again, it's not a mechanical thing. It's not just a ritual and a ceremony. No, there's this tasting. You're able to taste the goodness of God as you gather together as the people of God in the house of God with the Spirit of God. You taste, you experience 
It's, full, it's a fulfilling taste. It's a nourishing taste. It's a compelling taste. Psalm 118, 24, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. This is the day. Talking about the Sabbath. We rejoice in it. Uh, Psalm 43, 4, God is our exceeding joy. That's what, that's what ought to be the case. The, our exceeding joy, the, uh, to put it to backwards, the joy that exceeds all others. So, surpasses all other joys in this world. That's who God is. That's what we know in Christ is all of the, all of the pleasures and joys and excitements of the world, they just fade as compared to the exceeding joy that we have in God. And if our experience of God falls short of that, it's, this is that which we ought to be seeking. Because that's the language and the experience that lies behind the language that we see throughout the Bible. So it's not a theoretical knowledge of God. It's not an abstract theological knowledge of God as important as that, that, uh, that, that bare knowledge of the doctrines of the faith are. It moves us beyond that. And if we're to worship proper, properly, it's going to be with this high level of engagement and, and delight um, and even excitement and anticipation of experiencing the presence of God with the people of God in the house of God. And then fourthly, so where did I lose you? Spiritual worship is characterized by spiritual motives, spiritual delight. It utilizes spiritual means, that is the authorized spiritual means, not ones of our own creation. And we offer spiritual sacrifices. Uh, the Old Testament sacrifices were, to use the old language, they were carnal. You had altars and you had priests and they offered sacrificial animals on the altars. Those are physical, carnal sacrifices. I think that we, we understand what was going on in the Old Testament, right? You had a temple, you had a priesthood, you had an altar, you had lavers. They cleansed themselves. You had anointings. You had all this going on in the Old Testament. We're not meant to try to duplicate that. We're not meant to, to come up with our own priesthood and then furnish our buildings with lavers where we wash ourselves and with oil with which we anoint ourselves and and burn incense with which we represent our prayers ascending uh, up into heaven. And we're not meant to have an altar as a furniture, as a piece of furniture in, 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 in church. And we're not to be called priests and we're not to dress up in priestly garments. Why? Because our sacrifices are spiritual sacrifices. So we can go to 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter 2, beginning at verse 9. There, well, before, before verse 9, go back up to verse 5. Uh, he, there Peter writes, As you come to him, to Christ, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. So Christ is a living stone. You yourselves, 
like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are a, the church is, a spiritual house. We have not an Aaronic or Levitical priesthood. We have a holy priesthood that offers not physical sacrifices, animal sacrifices, but spiritual sacrifices. A spiritual priesthood, a royal priesthood, he goes on to say, verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So that's, that, that, that's, um, that's a clarifying um, um, description of what he means by spiritual sacrifices. We are, our spiritual sacrifices are proclaiming the excellencies of God and his salvation, having called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Uh, Hebrews 13, 15, we offer a sacrifice of praise. And above all, this, of course, this has everything to do with how we worship God, but also all of life and the context in which, in which, in which we worship God is an all of life of presenting of ourselves. In the terminology of Romans 12:1, presenting ourselves as living sacrifices and he, um, that are acceptable to God, which he then describes, does the Apostle Paul, as our spiritual worship. That's Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Okay, what are the sacrifices we offer? Sacrifices of praise, but also we present our whole selves, body and all, to God as a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So, it's a, again, it's a matter of integrity. He goes on, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So we offer sacrifices, spiritual sacrifices, which includes presenting ourselves because apart from presenting ourselves as spiritual sacrifices, apart from our resistance to conformity to this world and, and, and joined with the transformation of ourselves by the renewing of our minds, we wouldn't be able to worship God with integrity. In other words, because of what Christ has done, because we have been transformed and are being renewed, we are able then to present to God spiritual worship that is characterized by the right motive, that utilizes the right means, that is characterized by delight because it's the expression of the life of the one who has given himself in a, as a holy sacrifice and therefore is able to offer to God a spiritual worship. So we're not, we're not to take the Lord's name in vain, but if we come to a worship service at any point and are merely mouthing words, merely participating formally, merely in an external 
manner, mechanically repeating uh, the creed, repeating the hymns, repeating uh, the doxology and the Gloria Patri and, and so forth. We are taking the Lord's name in vain. No, to, to, to fulfill this commandment, we, we must invoke the name of God reverently and respectfully. And, and that means that when we worship, we worship with the aim to, to obey God, please God, enjoy fellowship with God, and delight in the things of God as we pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray, O oh Lord, that you would give us a deeper, ever deeper understanding of how to worship in such a, such a fashion that pleases you. Lead us, guide us, direct us in these things that we might worship you as Jesus says you must be worshiped in spirit and in truth. Amen.